Good evening, good afternoon, maybe somewhere it's good morning. My name is Herb and I'm an alcoholic. Please join me in prayer, asking for spiritual intervention. Notice it's asking for direct intervention. We're asking whatever this power is to enter into our mind and heart and open it up. That's the permission and invitation that we're extending. We're willing to be open. We're willing to have a clean slate. But in truth, we can't actually affect that. So we're asking the spirit or power other than ourself to enter in and provide this opportunity for new information and a new experience. Please join me. God, please set aside everything that I think I know about myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and you for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and especially you. I've regularly suggested that you all have a guide of some kind, a mentor, a coach, or a companion for this journey, sponsor or step guide. Some years ago, I was given a Persian proverb, it says, it's probably written by Rumi. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool, shun him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is a child, teach him. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep, wake him. He who knows and knows that he knows is wise, follow him. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. We're on step one. And as you know, we're going to take it in pieces. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. That literally has two parts a problem of the body and a problem of the mind. Bill introduces that right in the beginning. Certainly the doctor's opinion talked about a problem with the body, an allergy and a problem with the mind. He never really tells us what that is and he doesn't spend any time on it. We're on the doctor's opinion and we will spend some time unpacking that. Bill Wilson talks about the problem of the mind in the section after the doctor's opinion and tonight's explanation of the balance of the assignment. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be giving an assignment on the mind. Bill's conclusion is his experience is the words and the vocabulary that he uses is that we have an obsession. 
That's the source and the context in which he uses the word insanity. Coming from the Latin word sanus, meaning health, insanus, meaning not healthy. And you can check that out by looking at page 37, where Bill, in fact, defines it that way at the conclusion of Jim's story, the guy who puts a little whiskey in his milk. He said, that's just crazy. That's insane. And Bill gives us a definition there, a lack of proportion, a lack of thinking straight. We have an unhealthy mind. But the real problem is a problem of the will, dash that our life had become unmanageable. That's the second half of the first step. That's the spiritual malady. That's the real problem, Bill said. A problem of the will. Now, he didn't intend, I don't, I believe, in the structure of the big book to provide the approach that I'm providing. It's only after three journeys through the steps where I was able to look back over my shoulder and put it together in a different way that made sense because of the man who took me through the steps. He's the one that showed me a path to navigate unmanageability. After that, then I saw and came to realize that it completely parallels my understanding of what a human being is, that we have a body, but that doesn't make us human. What makes us human is that we have a mind and that we have a will. A mind that thinks and self-reflectively thinks. No other sentient being can do that. A will that can make a completely a voluntary, totally free decision. No other sentient being to our knowledge can do that. Civilizations are built on the principle of free will, of choice, of responsibility for our decisions and the actions that we take and the consequences that come out of those actions. Bill says very clearly throughout the book, addiction certainly is a problem. That's why the book was written. That's why the fellowship was created. It's just not the problem. It's a problem. It's not the problem. Addiction. The real problem is unmanageability. We have many different kinds of addiction. I, uh, the alcohol and the drugs is the easiest to look at and probably maybe the easiest to get a handle on because it's so black and white. Food addiction is not black and white. It's a substance addiction. And then there are all the process addictions, which are very difficult to get vocabulary on that parallels the big book's vocabulary because the big book was written by an alcoholic for alcoholics with the language of and vocabulary of and experience of alcohol. My challenge to you is to, if you're not an alcoholic or a drug addict, is to think through the parallel vocabulary in your experience, in your fellowship, that gives you the uh, ability to identify with the doctor's opinion 
about the allergy and the phenomenon of craving that gives you the vocabulary to identify with Bill's uh, concept of obsession and delusion and compulsion. We'll spend some time on addiction. Another couple weeks on the doctor's opinion and the related big book material. And then we'll move on to Bill's experience with the mind problem, with the obsession problem, with the compulsion problem. It gets progressively more substantial. The allergy concept is really important, but it's not as important as the obsession experience. We'll get some information and that's the whole point of studying the big book. But the real key and invitation of this process and what I pray that you can have is an experience. Information is good, but till it penetrates into our soul and creates a change in our attitude and a change in our actions, it's totally academic. Bill talks about the bondage of self. Of course, it's the bondage of addiction that prompted the big books being written. It has quite a history as we looked at last week. The body problem was described really well by Dr. Silkworth. It was 1939, he's a medical doctor, he's a psychiatrist. He's not an alcoholic, but he had years and years and years of frustrating service to the alcoholic. And he talks about entire abstinence. Certainly entire abstinence because of his opinion that once you put any alcohol into the body at all, it sets up a biological trigger similar to parallel to metaphorically like He's not a scientist here. He's not doing credentialed scientific exploration. It's an opinion on his. But he says it looks like, it feels like, it sounds like an allergy. I'm not saying it is, but think about it as an allergy. I'm allergic to strawberries. If I eat strawberries or if I eat too many strawberries, I break out in red lumps and I have no control over the red lumps. I have control over not eating strawberries. It's not true with alcohol, of course. Once I take a drink, the alcohol mixed with my chemistry and I'm compulsed to take another drink, very much like the allergy. But the real problem is the mind that when I stop, I start again, because I have this obsession that it'll be different this time, which is that unhealthy thinking I opened up my comments with tonight. Fortunately, Frank Buckman gave a group called the Oxford Group Six Steps, which Bill became acquainted with, a story that we've, re we've reviewed in short summary when we were looking at the Roman numerals. The Oxford group created for the purpose of first century Christianity conversion, 
and Bill used it for transformation and Ebby used it for transformation, his sponsor. And then Bill brought the message of the powerlessness of the allergy and the powerlessness of the mind to Dr. Bob, who was already in the Oxford group for two and a half years. All of these confluences are parallel in the early 30s. Carl Jung had sent Roland Hazard to find a spiritual experience, and he found it in Frank Buckman's Oxford group. Roland Hazard's the one that reached out to Ebby Thatcher. Ebby Thatcher reached out to Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson reached out to Bob Smith, and the rest is history. Only a percentage of us are addicts. But Bill had the prophetic insight, really, in the first preface to the first edition. You can see it. It's in, it's in the fourth edition. In that very first paragraph, in the last line, he said, our way of living may have its advantages for all, because he saw, although the 12 steps are effective for establishing a relationship with power, which will then free us from our addiction, whether it's process or substance. He didn't have that terminology. He was dealing with alcohol. He also knew the human condition of unmanageability, and as he framed it, selfishness and self-centeredness, extreme examples of self-will run riot. And that's what the majority of the book treats a spiritual malady, a lack of power, a lack of power other than ourself. And he had the gift of grace to keep it ubiquitous and, and, and vague as the God of your understanding. I've recently in the last couple of years rephrased that to the God of my not understanding. We'll talk more about that when we get to step two. Right now we're looking at the problem of the body. We have a defect in our biology. Please hear that. This is not a thought defect. This is not an emotion defect. This is not an awareness defect. This is not an education defect. This is not a moral defect. It's a biological defect. Once we engage in the substance, alcohol, drugs, or food, something is triggered, I'm using the word very advisedly, in our chemistry that creates a chemical reaction. I'm not a scientist. I, I, I'm not going to describe any of it scientifically. It's not important. We're going to look at behaviorally what's important. Once I start, I cannot stop. And that's what he calls the craving. Not the thought of a drink. Not the emotion feeling of a drink. Not the thought that your addiction, substance, or process will reduce your attention. It's not about thinking at all. We'll, we'll deal with that when we come to the mind problem. This is a biological problem, a physiological problem. When I put the chemicals in my body uh, connected to the food, pretty straightforward, 
or when the chemicals in me are stimulated in terms of the process addiction, much more complex, and I know very little about that, but there's an indication that it's a parallel experience to the alcohol chemical reaction. One of our members described it as dopamine coming out of the brain. There's, there's not conclusive evidence yet that of the connection to the parallel craving in the process addiction, but is highly suspected as parallel. So we look at the other parts later on. The point of this is once we start, we cannot stop. We're in that bondage. We've looked at part of the assignment was to look at the questionnaire. Do you have an addiction? This questionnaire is a 20 question questionnaire that parallels the one that's been around for decades, but to include drugs and to include food and to include behavior, the process addictions. And then the questions are geared both to the relevant things that have been in prior questionnaires and other people used, but also trying to capture my own experience so that Perhaps it can even be more effective, especially if you're not in any type of a, or aware of any type of a substance addiction, excuse me, a process addiction a problem. And, and I've invited you to use this set-aside attitude in prayer. Even if you're convinced that you're a drug addict and you're in a 12-step program for drug rehabilitation the 12-step program, the 12-step fellowship for that, put it on, put it on hold, not to the sense that you use drugs to experiment. No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that you experiment with any substance or any process, but I am asking you to look at your actual experience. That's, we'll, we'll get to that uh, toward the end of my conversation this evening. The worksheet on the body. That was the very first awareness that I had in the hospital program 37 years ago. I didn't go there <clears throat> because I had a problem. I went there because my wife had a problem and the program reached out to the family knowing that it's a family disease. <clears throat> and they asked me to write out my history of my relationship with alcohol bullet points not a not even full sentences just a bullet point start at 12 that was my experience a complete debacle drank it all blacked out passed out threw up and then as i went from year to year to year from age 12 to age 43 I could see for the very first time that there were some connections. It didn't happen every time, but when I began to drink, I lost control. Sometimes, not all the time. And that's probably what masked it from me in some respect. But in this autobiographical approach to looking at my relationship with alcohol notice i'm being very careful with the words because they were they didn't want to give me the sense that i was asking to reveal myself 
as having any type of an alcohol problem. They just thought, you know, you're in the game of helping Mary get sober. So why don't you get very conscious about your own relationship to alcohol? When it started, what happened, what's your behavior, what you drank, what you thought, how you felt, what were the outcomes, what were the consequences? And look at that over the last 30 years, Herb, they said to me. As I wrote it out, it took about three hours. I saw that I had an, a DUI arrest in 1968. I was two years married. She had to bail me out. Three years later, I had another DUI. I hadn't remembered that. I had not connected the dots. Three years later, I was in a hospital overnight due to a single car accident due to alcohol, 35 stitches in my head. Oh, I hadn't remembered that. And as I wrote it, it became very interesting to see those connections and the blackouts and the problems and the embarrassments and etc. at work and at home and in public. But what was really the key for that was not just the writing out, I had some suspicion of a problem, but reading it out to a group of men that were inpatient hospital confessed alcoholics, they had me come to that room with 15 other men and to read this out for the very first time out loud and consecutively. That was my very first experience with inventory and a fifth step. They didn't call it that at the time. That's not the hospital language. But it clearly was an autobiography of my relationship with alcohol and then reading it out loud. And when I read it out loud, I heard it for the first time. And at the conclusion of it standing in front of those men, I said, you know, I think I have a drinking problem. They all laughed. I mean, because, I mean, it was such a naive and completely genuine comment on my part, a surprise. I was not surprised that I had an alcohol problem, although I had never seen it. That's what I was surprised about. I had never seen it. I had never connected the dots of the way I drank and the problems in my life. I had not seen the puzzle pieces. Obviously, I had never put the puzzle pieces together to see the picture. So part of my invitation to you, it's not part of the assignment that's written, but over the weekend as I was preparing for our time together tonight, that was such an important experience on my part to begin to open me up to something I had never even suspected. And it began my journey um, that I would invite you to, in fact, look at your life, not in the sense of your story, but in the sense of your substance addiction and or possible process addiction, wherever you think that you're in excess, wherever you think you're in excess, and do a timeline in bullet point between now and next week or the following week. We're going to spend a couple of weeks on this body problem, this allergy problem, this craving problem. And I really want to help you get that the craving doesn't signal any awareness 
any consciousness, any feeling, Dr. Bob's, at least my opinion about his intent in the way he used the word mostly in the section, he does use it in different ways. So you have to be careful with, you can't just say it's black and white, but mostly he uses the term to suggest the, the phenomena, the observable event, the behavior that happens once we ingest the alcohol. Craving, he said very clearly, never happens before you ingest the alcohol. It always happens, excuse me, it, it happens after. Sometimes it's always chronic or sometimes it's periodic. That's my experience. He doesn't make that distinction. And so take a look at this questionnaire to maybe prompt your thoughts in doing this autobiography. It'll take you a couple hours to do, but if you have any doubt or if you have any suspicion that there's something else amiss other than what you've always considered to be your primary problem, this might surface it. Does my drinking, drug use, eating, or other compulsive behaviors ever Notice, I've made an effort to highlight ever, bolding it throughout all the 20 questions. If it happened once, it might be a mistake. It could be immaturity. It could just be an accident. But if it happens twice, and certainly three times, there's, that's a real indication of a, a problem that makes me unhappy or remorseful. I'm using a very broad net of behavior and emotions here to try to help people pick up where they might have some form of an addiction. So I would like to continue where we left off on page 17, where we left, left off in the instructions. We read pages one through eight last time after reviewing the doctor's opinion, one through eight was Bill's disintegration with his alcohol problem. Then I asked you to read pages 17 to 23 that begins chapter two, there is a solution. Because at least the way I was taken through this work one of the times the man connected that to the allergy problem, to the doctor's opinion about biology. At the, end, uh, uh, at the end of that assignment, at the top of page 23, Bill says, well, yeah, the body is a problem. The allergy is a problem. But if it's the problem, if it is the problem, then just stop it. No, no, no. Are you having a problem with drinking? Oh, you go to jail or you lose jobs or you lose partners? Stop it. Yeah. Oh, you can't. Oh, then the allergy is not the problem. Bill says very wonderfully on page 23, and we'll be looking at that in a couple of weeks. He said, so the mind is the problem. You can't stay stopped. You can stop. Most of, the, most of us can stop as anytime we want. 
maybe not for as long as we want, but normally we have the ability to stop for a day, for a weekend, for a month even. For I know people that have stopped for years and then they start again. Well, if they start again, they didn't stop. That's another delusion that people have to get over. Well, no, I stopped for five years and then I started again. Oh, that means you didn't stop. Because the thesis in the big book is once you stop on your own power, you can't stay stopped. There's only two ingredients to whether you have an addiction or not. There's only two. One is once I start, I cannot stop. And the other is once I stop, I cannot stay stopped. If, and Bill on page 44 uses it either or, one or the other. Most of us have both and. That is certainly my experience. On page 17, the big book suggests that there are thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Well, that used to read 100, like the title page did. How 100 men and uh, in fact, the first edition, as I think I pointed out way back when we started, it said the story of how 100 men let me just read it from the book have recovered from alcoholism. It was in the next printing that they added and women because by then 1941 they had a woman who had six months of sobriety. Her name was Marty Mann, and she was a patient of Dr. Harry Tebow's, and she was also a really brilliant woman who, once she got sober, started the National Council of Alcoholism, which is still functioning today in various cities. But they changed the vocabulary to represent the current status, thousands, they could say millions now, who were once just as hopeless. That's the key. That's the word that Bill tries and the big book tries to precipitate in step one. Hopeless. That's another synonym for powerless. I have invited you to consider various synonyms to powerless because we all have used it so often that we become brain dead to it. My favorite synonym is no choice. When I take a drink, I don't have a choice then of taking the second drink. Periodically, I will take the second and the 22nd, and I won't have intended to do that. Periodically. Some of you are periodic, some of you are chronic. My sense is I was a periodic, but I was on my way to becoming a chronic. I crossed what they, can, they talk about the invisible line at 12 years old. That was my very first drink and that was my very first drunk and I drank like that periodically for the next 30 years. Not the case with my wife. She waited. She didn't drink until she was 21. Then she began social drinking, very managed. We got married and then she drank with me and she drank socially. She, There were after the second or third year of our marriage, when we went out to party or wherever we were going, even business functions, at the end of the night, I would hand her the keys. 
I was in no condition to drive and we knew it. We had that conversation, but she was. And yet she turned out to catch the chronic disease at about 35, maybe 40. And fortunately had the courage to leave everything and risk everything to get recovered. This is the anniversary month of all of that 37 years ago. So it's probably very much on my mind. If I've said it before, bear with me. It says here on page uh, 17 that we're very, uh, come from very average people and that we have a common problem a common peril, it says. And this is one of the pieces of the cement that binds us together, this band of brothers and sisters, because we have a common problem, this addiction. He says it's one element in the powerful cement that binds us together. One element. And then down below, he's, that's the other element, is the common solution. A common problem will never keep us together. People in prison have a common problem. People in insane asylums have a common problem. People in a cancer ward have a common problem. That doesn't bind them together necessarily. But having a common solution, quite a different situation. We have a way out, it says. That's a, a line that they explored to call the book when it was first being written in manuscript form. They were going to call it the way out. But of course, fortunately, they visited the Library of Congress in Washington and they found out there were already 12 books named The Way Out and Bill said he didn't want to be the 13th. He was very superstitious. I mean, he did Ouija boards. He was a, he was a way out guy. He and Lois both. At the bottom, he has a great line. This is the great news this book carries, that solution. The great news, the word, the, the synonym word for gospel and the meaning of the word gospel is good news. This is what Bill is referring to, I believe. This is the good news. This is the great news. This book is a textbook that tells us how to deal effectively with our addiction. More than that, it tells us how to deal effectively with our life and reality. That's the part that I found at 10 years of sobriety. You see, addiction had been removed from me. On February 21st, 1984, when I agreed with the hospital after I read that little autobiography that I would quit drinking for 90 days. That was the agreement. And they said, and why don't you explore a, a meeting of alcoholics? And I did. I explored a meeting. I'm, I'm Herb, exploring being an alcoholic. They laughed lightly and gently and invitingly, fortunately, welcoming me. But that was three months after the alcohol problem had been removed from me. And I didn't know that until I was 10 years sober. And I did this work the way I'm going to show it to you on unmanageability and I finally understood my human problem. And I found in AA and in the steps what I had been looking for in the monastery. I left because I didn't find it. 
what I was looking for in psychology. I left because I didn't find it. What I was looking for in self-help. I left because I didn't find it. Fortunately, I stuck around AA long enough that I was exposed to somebody who had found it and then made it available to me. That's why I, keep, I, I say it regularly. You'll hear me say it regularly. Unmanageability is the best kept secret in the rooms of the 12-step fellowship. Most people don't really understand what it means, what its implications are, what its behavior looks like, what its exact nature looks like, and therefore they don't really understand the counsel on page 85 that we have a daily reprieve that we're not cured. You see, because that, that material confirms that by the end of the ninth step, we have been placed in a position of neutrality with regard to our addiction. There's where freedom is, freedom from the addiction. Bill doesn't make it this clear in the big book, but fortunately this man at 10 years of sobriety taking me through the big book had had a, a, a new experience with the big book and the step process and was able to piece it together just a little bit differently than Bill intended the structure. Faithful to the big book, con completely with integrity to the internal organic structure of the big book, but just pieced together in a, in a way that gave me a new experience, understanding unmanageability as the human problem, unmanageability as the spiritual problem, unmanageability as the problem for which I, there is no cure, but there is a treatment, a daily reprieve, a daily stay of execution, based on our practice of our way of life. Bill uses that term for encompassing steps 10, 11, and 12. You've seen that. I've given you a taste of that at the beginning of the workshop because I want you to have those power tools, inventory in step 10, for you to use on a daily basis. Why not? It's there. It's available. Use it. Step 11, prayer and meditation. It's there. Use it. Step 12, principles, sponsorship. Why not know about them and use them while you're in fact looking at the impossibility and the hopelessness and the doom that we're going to precipitate if you don't already have it in step one. Looking at powerlessness through the lens of power. It's, a, it's, a, and it's, a, it's an experiment that I started about three years ago. You, I think I gave you the history behind it. I'm not going to do that now. It's been very powerful for me, and it's been very, very powerful for the, for the workshop, I believe. An illness of this sort, page 18. Annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. Addiction. Bill's talking about alcohol. I'm going to broaden it because of the demographics of this group. This group is coming from all different 12-step fellowships. This group has people in it who are not even in a 12-step fellowship. This group has people in it who have never identified any addiction that they have, but they mm, know there's something amiss with their personal and spiritual lives, or at least with their emotional stability. And they have heard that the 12-step process might be useful. They might not understand spiritual awakening, but they do understand the word change. And if they've come across anybody that has had a spiritual awakening, they're going to be 
curious, curious about how did they get to be so happy all the time? In contrast, addiction engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. We all can increase the list. This volume is to inform you and comfort you. Of course, we looked at the next couple paragraphs when we looked at the concept of sponsorship, a word that's not in the big book, but I saw those two paragraphs as being appropriate and applicable. So I'm not going to look at those now. I'm on page 19. Elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. You see, addiction is not the problem. Again, he's saying that. A much more important demonstration of our principles, how we're going to live our life as a sober or abstinent person in our homes, in our occupations, and our affairs. How then shall we present that which has been so freely given us? Page 19. We're setting forth the problem as we see it. We're bringing the combined experience and knowledge. This should suggest a useful program. We're going to discuss medical, psychiatric, social, religious. We're going to discuss it. Don't be put off. We're not here to argue on politics or religion or psychology or treatment programs. That's not the point, he says. Real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions, our attitudes, which will make us happy? No, that's not what he said. He's very clear and very consistent. Internal integrity of Bill and the big book. It's never going to be about us and our happiness. It is going to be about our abstinence and our usefulness. And so that's what he says here. Attitudes which makes us useful to others. Our very lives as recovered addicts, I'm changing the words to suit the group, depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. We're not talking about the codependency, suffocating manipulation of others or being manipulated and being suffocated by them. He's talking about that healthy caring that is developed where we really truly want to be helpful if they want help. Why do we become ill from drinking? He has no real opinion on that. He, he wants to stay out of that. What he's saying is, look at us. We have recovered. There it is on page 20 again in that second, uh, in the first full paragraph. We have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. Bill's very much focused on the first half of the first step. He addresses the second half of the first step, but not in this conversation about step one. He addresses part of it in step two. He addresses part of it in step three. And that's where I, I mentioned that I'll be piecing it together for you in a way 
that will allow you then to see, I believe, the full picture of what he means by unmanageability and powerlessness. If you are an alcoholic, if you are an addict who wants to get over it, you may, uh, you may be asking, what do I have to do? Notice the question. He doesn't say, what do I have to know? What do I have to feel? What do I have to discuss? What do I have to think? What do I have to write? What do I have to talk about? He doesn't say any of that. What do I have to do? Well, he always asks these questions that open up to a comment that's going to answer the question. And I'm going to point it out almost every time that I'm aware of it, that he does that because it's a method of teaching that's, that I've adopted. Helping you ask a really good, insightful, curtain-penetrating question helps you then to receive the commentary, the knowledge, and the suggestions and connect to your experience so that that curtain can be parted and the lights can dawn for the very first time, perhaps. What do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. This is a textbook. We shall tell you what we have done, not what we thought about, not what we know, not what we discussed, not what we wrote about not what we felt. Oh, we'll be talking about all of that, but that's not the issue. It's all about what we do. This is action. And then Bill gets into the moderate drinkers and the hard drinkers and the real alcoholic. And he does that to help people discern. I gave you an assignment to take a look at pages 108 through 113. I said 110. I, as I re looked at it, it looked like I, I went to 113. But be that as it may, if you've looked at it, it's in To the Wives. And he literally numbers them. One is the heavy drinker, just an unhealthy habit. If he wants to quit, he'll be able to quit if he has enough motivation. The wife's going to leave him. The, job, the, the employer's going to fire him. The doctor says you're going to die. The judge says you're going to go to prison. They'll straighten up because it's just an unhealthy habit they've developed if they're motivated. Number two begins to show some signs of the alcoholic problem, showing a lack of control, out of hand. He tries, but he can't. He's losing friends. He wants to want to stop, Bill concludes that item with. Number three, gone much further, a deterioration. It's a progressive illness. These may or may not be applicable to you or the people that you're connected to. That's why I think it's, it's wonderful to see these descriptions, to see the progression of then the description of the progression. Hospitals, doctors, sanitariums. And then, of course, number four is the person who has really become a down-and-out, chronic, lost everything. One institution after another, insane, delirium tremens, 
And then he goes on and describes the rest of it. I'm sure that's why I indicated in my own notes up to 113. He continues to describe it. I'm just saying it was a useful panoramic view of the progression and disintegration of addiction. And I hope it was of some value to you. Bill is really talking about the real alcoholic, though, on page 21. He begins to lose all control, please hear it, once he starts. This is the key to the doctor's opinion. Once you start, the doctor calls it a craving, but it's not a thought craving. It's not an emotion craving. It's not a conscious craving in the dictionary sense. It's a very unique application of the term craving only to be found in its definition in the doctor's opinion context where he said it only develops after you have the first drink after you've in our uh, broadening of it to other addictions after you've made the first bet after you've sat down at your computer to spend five minutes on pornography. We'll talk about what led up to that, but that's not the point here. There's only one element to the answer to the question. Were you able to stop after you engaged, after you took the drink, took the drug, took the bite, or started engaged in the process. And that engaged in the process could be a memory, it could be a fantasy, it could be a thought, it could be an action. We'll talk more about that when we get to the mind problem. He talks about Jacqueline Hyde, just to give the example of perfectly normal most of the time. But when we drink, of course, we change our personalities. A senseless series of sprees. I, I never had that. I didn't disintegrate to that level. But I was always amazed that I got drunk because it was never my intention. I hear people who intentionally went out to get drunk. My goodness, that was never my intention. I love to have a couple drinks to feel better, to feel comfortable, to feel part of. And I like the taste of alcohol. I never met one I didn't like, but that wasn't the issue. Once I started, I did not stop, but I didn't see that because it didn't happen every time. Bill talks about combining the alcohol with drugs. So he, he was experiencing what many are experiencing today, especially the young people with the proliferation of drugs there are, the availability of it, easier probably than alcohol for some of the young people. And Dr. Bob, by the way, had a drug problem also, as you saw from his story and from the little bit that we looked at in the Roman numerals. I mean, he could write his own prescriptions, and he did. The key word here on page 22, our behavior patterns vary. 
Why does he behave like this? One drink means another debacle, meaning failure. With its attendant suffering and humiliation, why does he take the one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? So now he's leading us up to the real problem of the mind. He says, we, we don't really have the answers to these questions back in 1939, and we still don't, quite frankly. He has a description of what he considers to be his, his answer to that problem. We are sure once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he might do for months or years, he reacts much like other people. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens. Again, please look at the chronology here. It wasn't the thought. It wasn't the feeling. It wasn't the Webster's Dictionary craving definition. It was purely and simply once he took the drink. He's not explaining why he took the drink. That's a, a chapter for the balance of the story. He's explaining once he took the drink. Something happens bodily and mentally, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop the experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. And that's why we have that body worksheet. Of course, then he transitions into assignment four, which is about the mind. And we won't get there for another couple of weeks because I want to spend some time having you talk about your experiences and your understanding and your questions about this doctor's opinion. It's the least important part but all of it's important. It's important to know why you're an addict. It's not your fault. Most of it can be explained genetically, about 80, 85% genetically. These observations, page 23, all the way up to now, doctor's opinion and all Bill's opinion and observations would be academic and pointless if you never took the first drink. So clearly the problem is in the mind. Why did you take the first drink? So here's the questionnaire. What is my experience with addiction? Well, you have to understand what addiction is. My definition, it's not scientific, it's just Herb's words put together reflecting his understanding and experience. Addiction is repetitive behavior over which I have no control, which leads to uh, negative consequences. Repetitive behavior over which I have no control, which leads to negative consequences. This man, when he was taking me through the doctor's opinion, he said, I want you to give three examples of what happened. What happens when I indulge in this addiction? Well, at Christmas time, I was uh, outside salesperson. I had told one of my vendors, he invited me to lunch and I told him that I had an hour and 15 minutes 
and then I had to be back for a very important meeting and project back in the office, which was within walking distance. I had walked to this place. And he said, okay, an hour and 15 minutes, we'll clock it. I look forward to celebrating our holiday with you. We ordered a drink and we ordered lunch and we had the drink and we finished lunch. And I said, okay, thank you so much. Cause he was buying. And um, he said, well, wait, you have another 15 minutes. You said you have an hour and 15. Why don't we just have a after lunch Christmas drink? This is back in the, uh, in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Where uh, drinking was still a very part, very big part, at least in my industry of business, take your clients out to lunch and dinner, et cetera. And I said, okay, but I, I do need to leave in 15 minutes. We got the drink, we had the drink. And then all of a sudden we're drinking some more and we closed the place. And then we went to an after a five o'clock place. And then I was in an after hours place. I don't know how I got home. Once I started, no matter what my promise to myself or my obligations were, I was hijacked by the drink. So it's that specific that I'd like you to do the worksheet with. Remembering a specific time, a specific event, a specific circumstances, what was going on at the time that you had made a decision to manage your time and your addiction. If you were even aware that you had a problem with alcohol or with food or with drugs or with behavior of any kind. What is my history of attempts to deal with it? I stopped regularly for January, no problem. I stopped regularly for Lent, no problem. I stopped for a self-help program that took 90 days. I put those examples down. But what I saw was no matter how good I felt during the period I stopped, I had no problem stopping. No matter how good I felt, I always started again. And I don't remember starting. It just, I started again. I overrode all of my reasons for stopping, all of the experience of the benefits of stopping, all the thoughts that went into it, all the resolutions that I just started again for no apparent reason. How successful have I been once I start to control my substance? And that's where I, I was looking at the fact that I could, in fact, go to the bar at night, get a couple of drinks after work and go home like I promised. But progressively, those periods became closer and closer and closer that I lost control, that I went to the bar to have two drinks and I had 22 and I didn't go home when I was promised and every once in a while I ended up in an accident or in jail. How honest have I been with others about my efforts and failures? Well, of course not. I never even told my psychiatrist that I went to jail. Well, that's not true. I said I went to jail and, and his comment when I had been, been arrested for drunk driving, 
and and he just was very delighted. He says, oh, that really tells me that we're on the right track of talking about your problems with your father. Took me a while to get over my resentments. Was it once I understood I was an alcoholic, but I did, of course, the program helps me there, but he just didn't know. I didn't have a problem with my father in that sense of becoming an alcoholic. Of course, I was an alcoholic because of the genetics of my father, but I wasn't, a pro I wasn't an alcoholic because he was verbally and emotionally abusive, which he was. I handled that by leaving home at 17 to become a monk. For seven years, we didn't talk. It was wonderful silence. There was no chaos. Anyway. So I want you to address the questionnaire for yourself, if in fact you are inclined to do that. Um, it's not a part of the formal assignment, but it came to me over the weekend as a sort of a supplement that might be helpful to take a look at addiction for yourself, the one that you're aware of and the one that you might not be aware of in substance and in process. And especially do the worksheet but, and take it seriously that you're looking at your autobiography, do a radar sweep. I'm not talking about uh, a lot of therapeutic application of words. No, I'm looking at bullet points about the behavior, not the thinking and the, and the feeling. No, the behavior. What happened when you fill in the blank with regard to your addiction in terms of those questions and be as specific as I just, I think I was with regard to the Christmas and with regard to maybe one other one. And I've shared before about some of the others. It would be very good for you to finish that worksheet by uh, next week. I want to use, um, tonight, the balance of tonight, to discuss anything that you want to discuss that I might have even overlooked in the big book. I merely hit some of the highlights that I had. I didn't even talk about all of the highlights, but that leaves room for you to talk about any highlights that I didn't cover or that I did and you want to make comment about. If you've already looked at the um, questionnaire and or the worksheet, you're welcome to talk about that. Be very conscious that in the sharing of your story of addiction, don't get hijacked by the feelings about it. Stay kind of focused on what we're doing here in terms of looking at that behavior of being hijacked by the substance or process. Once I start, I cannot stop. Everything else after your start is story when it's not necessary. But to hear the various stories about starting and the circumstances around that can be quite helpful, especially in the process addiction. Food addiction is fairly straightforward. Excuse me. Uh, 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 substance addiction is pretty straightforward. Food addiction might be an exception there. Um, it's not straightforward at all, uh, by my understanding. Um, but process addiction, I look for the vocabulary to help me get some vocabulary to help other people when they're struggling to find the vocabulary. All right. Um, so 
listening, you know, what you said the, that Bill has in the big book about how addiction is not the problem uh, and all the other things that I've read and heard you talk about is, is like the craving is what makes us addicts, you know, because it's the way it seems to me. Yep. The one problem of, is, one of two components. Yes. Yeah. But the, the problem is, um, we haven't gotten there yet, but you know, it's the unmanageability, I think, basically. But there's a lot of people walking around in the world with that spiritual malady and and are and they are unhappy, but they don't have that allergy to some process or some substance that causes them to take a nosedive once they find that. Yes. No, that's right. That's a tremendous disadvantage, as funny as it might seem that they don't have an addiction that creates the suffering that has them come to a solution for the addiction and they find a solution to their unmanageability. That's my story. That's my story. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, so we can consider ourselves lucky in a sense, if we do find this program that we get to actually find a way of living. Oh my God. Where we, we are happier than most people. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, something else that I heard, um, uh, you, oh yeah, when he, when he, when Bill talks about the, um, the different types of alcoholics, uh, for a long time in meetings, I, I, I thought, cause you hear once in a while, you hear somebody share, I'm, a, I'm a real alcoholic, you know, like, like nobody, <laughs> like nobody else in the room is. Right? We've just gotta be special, right? Yeah. yeah. Or I'm a grateful alcoholic. Thank you so much. Bless you. <laughs> oh, I have judgment. I'm not perfect. <laughs> but um, but so I, I thought, well, you know, I read about the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. And, and I was never like that. I knew people that drank like that. You know, mm, I had yeah. friends whose parents were like that, you know, and and you can just take one look at them and you know they are completely lost to yeah. alcohol. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't, I never reached that point, you know, but so I always, for a long time there, I questioned, do I really belong here? Is yeah. this something that I don't need and that I could just stop on my own? But after several failed attempts, I realized that wasn't the case. I couldn't stay stopped like, like you talk about, but right. it was good to, when I read the, um, uh, in the 12 and 12, how, uh, and Bill talks about in step one that, um, that, that nowadays younger people are coming into meetings before they've gotten to that uh, real alcoholic stage. And, and because they see hints of it coming and they save themselves a lot of misery. So he, he in that, in the 12 and 12, in that uh, step one, really uh, points out the fact that um, even if you haven't reached that point yet, you still belong here if you answer these certain questions, check these certain boxes. Yeah. Uh, that indicates you are, if you're not a true, a real alcoholic now, you will be in the future and it's yeah. might as well do it, take care of it now. The, and the, the uh, young people are coming to their bottom faster because the drugs uh, accelerate the process. Most alcoholics don't come into a program if they're just alcoholics uh, until they're probably 35, 40, 45 years old. Um, but the younger people connected to drugs, they're coming in at 17, 20, 21. 
and they're if they can get some traction, which has got to be just incredibly difficult at, at a young age with the peer pressure and all the, the culture pressure, it's got to be very difficult. Yeah, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I could. Well, you don't know. Here you are. You don't have to. Well, I tried it. And I couldn't <laughs> oh, do it. <laughs> I see. Oh, I see. <laughs> Thanks, Herb. You bet. The first year that I was in doing this, I, I the story doesn't matter, but I basically didn't do steps one, two, and three. I, even though I came to the meetings, um, and then I effectively just started into step four with somebody mm -hmm. uh, using you know your, the worksheets and what have you. And it wasn't until last year that I finally did one, two, and three using you know what you present the, the worksheets, not just listening, but doing the worksheets yeah. and holy cow. Uh -huh. So please, everybody, I feel like I'm the poster child for how not to do it. <laughs> please do the worksheets because it, it's so much more than just reading the worksheets and thinking, oh, okay, okay, okay. You know, I, I, I did read them, but I didn't ever fill them out that first yeah. year. Right. You gotta fill them out. That's all I wanted to say. And thank you. For I'm, gonna, I'm gonna add to that because I shared my story with the hospital program in my autobiography and writing it out was important. And I'm gonna add to yours and it may not be your experience, but when I read it out, I had a much deeper experience. So I'm gonna recommend, thank you for prompting me, that once you write it out, that you actually read it out to somebody. And I did actually write down also having a step guide uh, because yes, I did read it to my step guide as well. So yes, there you and go. discuss it. You got to do all that. Well, it gave me, once I'd done the work of the steps and had some experience, like two different times with four and five, and I was thinking about that original autobiographical experience in the hospital, I realized the benefit of the fifth step for the very first time, because every time I did a fifth step, I had the similar experience that, oh, sure, when I did the fourth step, I had some breakthrough insights and information. But once I did the fifth step and talked about it out loud consecutively for several hours, it washed over me in a way that could not have been accomplished by just writing it out. You know, this, this idea of hitting bottom. And I had a lot of bottoms along the way, but then, you know, this one thing happened with my job. They fired me, said, go rehab. And I went through the motions. And, uh, you know, this idea, I really didn't feel like I hit a bottom with that one, you know, and, but it, it, I was in Alcoholics Anonymous and I got the message, but the thing, this idea of hitting bottom. And I think for other people here that are in this other programs, you know, this idea of hitting one must hit bottom yeah. because what alcohol was doing for me was it wasn't a craving so much as it was it was doing for me what I could not do for myself it was giving me yes. the courage. it was giving me the spiritual thing because yes of, right yes yes no alcohol worked until it didn't absolutely and I was impressed thank you for bringing it up uh, that bottom part, because I was impressed. I read over the weekend uh, in preparation for tonight, uh, chapter one again from the 12 and 12 about step one. And he, I never realized how much he stresses that. 
that bottom part. He doesn't stress it as much in the big book, but in the 12 and 12, I mean, he goes over that and over that and over that. Um, he calls it the bedrock, complete defeat, the taproot, the foundation. We have to hit bottom. We have to be hopeless. It's kind of like, whoa, okay, thank you for sharing. <laughs> Yeah, and but but he does mean, and he's not being poetic, hopeless. I'm 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 assuming that's what you meant by bottom. Yeah, I, I meant you know these the, that incomprehensible demoralization, and I had many of those along the way. But at that moment where I was just guided into by grace into yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous, it wasn't really my one of my big bottoms that I had over the years. Yeah. So yeah. At, at at that moment where where I was in got the message and in recovery it wasn't actually a bottom for me you yeah. know yeah somebody once said that uh they were never able to reach their bottom because they were very adept at uh, lowering their principles <laughs> <laughs> until they couldn't lower their principles fast enough to they were reaching the bottom faster and that's when they reached their bottom. Yeah, they couldn't lower their standards enough. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. It was interesting reading, uh, doing the reading, um, because I always thought of my my father as a um, as an alcoholic. But you know, reading this, I think perhaps he was a hard drinker, because he was functional. Uh, I always sort of classified himself him that way. But I know we have to diagnose ourselves but just in terms of my story my story is a little bit like yours you know I <laughs> I drank my first drink was at 15 and then um but I had and I woke up and I had a blackout that first night I and um, I woke up with that incomprehensible demoralization at 15 so but it was so it's so crazy to me it's just so it's such the sign of my alcoholism that after waking up that first morning, all of those feelings were waiting for me. I had no history, but right. suddenly I had all the burden of the consciousness of my behavior and how humiliated I was. Yeah. And I, I, am, I am a periodic, um, but um, so really what I wanted to share, I just wanted to mention that what, I was reading page 263 tonight <clears throat> and something jumped out of me because I love how much we focus on the big book. I love what an expert you are. And I've always wanted to be a thumper, a big book thumper. And now I get my opportunity with you to be a thumper. So I just have to bring something to your attention. May I? Please. Um, so it's Bill having just prayed with Dr. Bob, right? <clears throat> the picture is still, still vivid. This is 263. If I live to be a hundred, it will always stand out of my mind. It was very impressive, and I wish that every AA could have the benefit of this type of sponsorship today. So is this Dr. Bob's story? This is, this is in, he himself, he himself short. He sold himself short, page 263. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So it's, it's not Bill Wilson you're quoting. No, but the, but the word sponsorship does come up. Oh, in yeah, in the story. Yeah, yeah, I see. Well, that's interesting. I wonder if that's one of the original stories then, uh, or was that in the second edition? 
Don't know, but I just. I'll, uh, uh, I'll look it. I'll look it up. But thank you so much for identifying that because now I I can do a little more sleuthing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, because I don't know. Uh, clearly, the the term sponsorship came into the twelve step AA. Uh, in 1951, uh, 1951, because Bill Wilson published the 12 and 12 and the term sponsorships all the way through saturating the 12 and 12. So someplace between 1939, when the big book was published in 1951, they adopted that word, which, which wasn't in the big book uh, first edition. But so I'll be very curious as to whether that story was in the second edition or in the first edition. And if it was in the first edition, what printing did it appear? So, yeah. But it interests me too, because, you know, I've been sober like 28 years or something, 28 years, I'll be 29 in May. And I've always heard that sponsorship was not in the big book. And then when we were reading tonight, it just jumped out at me and I went, what do you mean it's not in the big book? It's here. Well, but what I mean by the big book, let's define our terms. Uh, the Roman numerals up from page one to 164. For me, that's the big book. That's the textbook. That's the, the, the book that Bill wrote to help alcoholics recover. The rest is just stories to witness that it really works. So I when I say the big book, I do not mean the stories. I've not actually even read all the stories. That's been on my agenda for 10 years to read the stories. And I, I will get to it. But you guys keep me too busy. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. So, you know, I have a lot of drugs in, in my in my history and drugs, chronic. I, it, there's just, I cannot take certain drugs. It, all, all bets are off. But alcohol, I guess I've been truly periodic and I have a very strong will because I, I you know, I, I went to college and law school. I worked at, 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 at prestigious firms. And I, I didn't drink all day. I didn't drink all night. I drank on weekends. I never, alone. I mean, I had all the rules. But the thing is, is when I drank, it was the humiliation of all the things worthwhile in life. I remember in the early 90s, when I was dating the man who was my husband, became my husband for 26 years, I had this amazing job. And, and, I, and I just could not wait to leave it in the evening and go home and drink and, you know, fool around. And I ended up getting fired from that job. They told me I was the smartest associate, but they didn't like my attitude. And I just realized tonight it's because I only wanted to go home and drink with, with this man. I didn't have a hangover. It didn't impede. Well, it did impede my work. I got fired. But it didn't impede my work. It impeded. Oh, you're going to have so many of these oh. like, oh, I thought that. And oh, my God, here's the truth. I've been leaving. I've been Believing a lie all these years. All these years. I even started in NA because I couldn't say I was an alcoholic because it wasn't true. And of course, I am in AA. I like it better, but it is true. Well, <laughs> here's, the, here's the question. So when you started to drink, what was your intention? Oh, the effect. I wanted, I, I, need, I needed to round the edges. I yeah. could not... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <sighs> yeah. I, I'm at peace now. I'm integrated now. I'm whole now. Please pass the whiskey. <laughs> the whiskey. 
That was the first drink, whiskey sours, 12 years go. old. Yeah, all right. And so uh, mine was a quart of whiskey and a six pack of beer and both were warm. 12 years old, what do you know? All right, but um, here's the real question for you then. All right, one of two. When you started, did you ever lose control? Well, so, you know, see, that's the thing. Like you, oh, I guess, periodic, oh, mostly yeah, not. No, no, wait, wait, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You're an attorney. I, I'm, I'm litigating you right now. <laughs> um, when you started, hear the question, did you ever lose control? Yes. More than once? Yes. More than twice? Oh, yes. More than three times? Yes. Were you ever concerned about losing control? No. Oh, you're you're in the right program, right? Yeah, the only time I lost control was when someone would keep filling my glass, though, oh, and I wasn't yeah. paying attention. Yeah, because oh yeah, yeah, and and over what? How many years did that go on where you periodically lost control? You know, I I stopped in my early forties, so you know, all those years, many many years, many 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 years. Well, now you're educated, you're bright, you obviously have a lot of willpower with the kind of background that you described, all right? And, and yet you weren't concerned about losing control and you lost control periodically. See, there's, to me, that's the conundrum there. I look back, I mean, I have a, a reflective background of a highly educated person in philosophy, psychology, and theology, all reflective. I, I'm, I'm a good guy and I really want to, I want to be a saint. That's how I started out my life, all right? Literally with that Catholic thing, you know? And, and, and here I am going to jail. Whoops. Yeah. So once you start, you cannot stop, but it didn't happen all the time. Now, did the periods in which it happened get closer to one another toward the end of your drinking? Well, yes, but I had added back the drugs in. So in fact, when I was in rehab, I kept saying, well, why can't I drink? Why can't I have a glass of wine with dinner? I don't have a glass of wine with dinner. I have wine instead of dinner. But, you know, I, it really took me, oh, oh, it took me about six months in recovery to see that I was an alcoholic because of other behavior. Yeah, yeah. The craving, I didn't think I had the craving. I thought, well, maybe I have, you know, the second part, the mind, but I do have the craving based on what you said tonight. So let's just, for other people's sake, this is a teaching moment from my standpoint, not necessarily a question for you as much as it is a teaching moment. What is your definition or, or, or description of craving? Well, I mean, I, I, I get from the reading that it's something that happens that once you start drinking, you can't stop. But look at I weigh 110 pounds, so I don't need a lot of drinking. So I'm like 22 drinks. If I have three, I'm drunk and I don't wait, like wait, to wait, be. wait, wait, wait. If you have one, did you intend to have one or two? What was your intention when you yes, started? Yes, I always said two nice martinis is perfect for exactly. me. Exactly. My mother told me, Herb, make a decision before you leave. 
have two drinks when you go out. Oh, you have a problem? Have a sandwich before you go out. Oh, have buttermilk before you go out. Oh, drink a little bit of olive oil before you go out. I mean, she was so helpful. <laughs> oh, but because she's an untreated Al-Anon and, and, you know, my dad was a, a drunk, but he was a he was a, more of a chronic alcoholic. Well, maybe toward the end. But anyway, so you're seeing it now. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, thanks. That's the and that incomprehensible moral demoralization that I would do mostly with men. Yeah. I, I mean, ah, oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you see, you immediately start rational. But I'm only 110 pounds. No wonder alcohol. Yeah, no, that's not it at all. Well, it was my husband's fault because he liked to drink, so he would make yeah. me drink. Oh, well, you, I'm sure that you have a laundry <laughs> list of reasons why you, yes. Yeah. But anyway, of course, I was doing it before him, but okay, wow, wow, so powerful. Thank you for that. And that's why we spend time on it. It's not the most important component, but having that experience kind of like, oh, that's why abstinence is so important because... It's the spark that lights the fire, literally. Yeah, thank you so much. I was gonna ask uh, a question on um, that craving thing. You said that once we, we have to take the drink. Yes. We have to do something and yes. then that initiates the craving. And I, I got to thinking about that because I haven't had a drink in a long time. Yeah. But um, one of the things that happened is that when I would get fearful, then I would eat something. Okay. Yeah. And um, and as oh, wait, wait, this, this is very cool now. So you ate something. What was your intention to eat something? What was your, what was your intention? I would want to get some sort of inner calm or some some, some sort of peace or yes, reduce the tension. Reduce the tension. Yeah, and and once you had the food. And the retention and the tension was going down. You stopped, right? Well, I ate until I was satisfied. Well, how, what does satisfied mean? Satisfied me <laughs> until I decided to stop. Until, until there was no more. That too. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> no, you see, that's what I'm talking about. But see, I, this is the first time that I actually put it into my brain about this process that you're talking about. Yep. Because when I take a look at it, there are lots of things that trigger me to not just eat, you nope. know. Yes, I do. To, you know. I have the same problem with work. I have the same problem with uh with emails, I'll sit down and I'm, well, I'm going to do 10 minutes before I do my meditation. Four hours later, I haven't done my meditation. That's what I'm, I'm talking That's about. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and so this uh, worksheet you, you gave us about the body, that really kind of crystallized it for me because you said you wanted specific examples. Yeah. And so when I, when I look at it, you know, the, the drinking is, um, it's been a long time, Yeah. but, but my unmanageability has now surfaced up so it's that I can. Your unmanageability. Sorry, hon. This is your addiction. 
what you're talking about, this new experience, this is just broadening out your understanding of your addiction. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. yeah. Anyway, I want I want to thank you. I just I just realized it, and I, I just wanted to say something. I love it. It's working. You you guys are you you're confirming the effectiveness of what we're doing because you're you're having this. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, that's it right there. No no words are necessary. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm realizing the great gradual nature of the recovery process, right. the, the gradual nature of the disease, but also the gradual nature of the recovery process. Absolutely true. It's fragile. Yes, you're right. Yeah. And like when I first started, I thought my problem was the person I was married to. Like yes. that was a problem for I sure. Understand. And it might have been. Yeah. <laughs> and then but but I also when I started reading about this constitutionally incapable of being honest I thought ooh, that's me that sounds like somehow that bugs me that that sounds like that might be me well it's good that um, you're open to it but it's just not true and we'll see that when we get to it yeah and for so you then, it's not true you're not constitutionally incapable you may have emotional you may have mental but you're not constitutional which means biological Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So it's been quite the process. Once I did a fourth step with you, everything changed. Yeah. And, and where I find myself tonight is uh, realizing, wow, it wasn't my ex that was the problem. It was my addiction. Yeah. But now tonight we're saying the addiction is not the problem. Um, well, I, it, it's a our problem. problem. It's our problem. It's just not the problem. Yes. Right. Right. So it's like it's so interesting for me to hear you say that's a problem. Of course, it is a problem. Yeah. But that is not the problem. Right. And so it's like, wow, this is quite enlightening for me. Right. Quite enlightening. It's been a lot to think about. If the addiction is not the problem, now what is the problem? <laughs> Well, the, 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 the addiction is the problem while you're in the addiction. There's no question about that. But once you deal with the addiction and I'm, I'm, you're hearing, you're resonating with it, and you're asking a wonderful, healthy question. Well, if that's not the problem, what is the problem? And we will address that. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. This is, uh, yeah. this is gradual, and I'm loving the, the gradual part of it because it's... Uh, yeah. It's like eating a slow meal and enjoying every last little part of it. Well, I, I avoid uh, metaphors like that because <laughs> of the food addicts, uh, but I do use the dimmer switch. The mm, dimmer switch okay. goes up a notch at a time, and every time it goes up, there's more light. And the benefit of the dimmer switch for us is that it's, on, it's, an, it's connected to an infinite light. So it always can go up with more light. All right. Thanks. That's fantastic. Thank you. You know, through this process, I have been pondering the question, is my life serial suffering? Yeah. And I too have been sober, you know, 32 years. The alcohol is way yeah. in the past, Yeah. but I have current suffering and, and I'm creating current wreckage. Yeah. And I'm having to look at that and, and I'm seeing it in the area of um, finances, my financial yeah. stuff and yeah. 
issues as relating to my job and my career. And I'm wondering, can I do this process and be very specific with that, with those like The more specific, the more benefit you will get from it. Okay. Because it's not alcohol. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of interchanging the words and that as I'm reading, I'm replacing it with money, money, career, gear, you know, wreckage, great procrastination. Right. It's getting ugly, Um, (laughs) but I'm getting real. I I have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So um, I think that's, that's my approach. And I just wanted to run it by you. Uh, Blessings because you may have opened up a Pandora's box for yourself and now you're going to have company. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Tonight, when I was listening to you talk about the craving versus the mental obsession, the physical body part is a craving. I totally get that when it comes to the food. Well, with alcohol too, but with the food, it's like my abstinence is defined. The program I'm in is defines my defines abstinence as no flour and sugar weighed and measured meals. Yeah. And I haven't had any flour and sugar for five years. And I really get that when I, if I, I mean, I don't, it, I don't want to eat it because I know if I ever started, you know, I'll never, I won't stop. And, and a serving size is the whole box or whatever. One of my, one of the participants indicated that in the same way that skull and crossbones is on alcohol yeah. for tea, Skull and crossbones is on sugar and flour for her. Exactly. Exactly. And I, it took me a long time to get that. Yeah, she talks about alcoholic food. Alcoholic food. Exactly. And, you know, alcohol really was just a liquid form of sugar. Okay. And it was a gateway drug to well, everything else that yeah. was creating uh, unmanageability for me. Cause I was yeah. a periodic, I was a periodic. Yeah. And so, um, but the, the obsession of the mind is the Talk piece. About in a couple of weeks. Yep. Yeah. The obsession of the mind is like with, especially around the food. It's like, I'm, I keep trying to, I keep trying to find that um, the alarm, you know, I have yeah. signals that warn me about well, not touching problem. alcohol, not touching the yeah. crossbones. Here's, here's the, we're going to talk about it, so I don't really want to talk about obsession. Okay. But you okay. brought it up, so I'm going to just kind of like give a teaser. All right. If we're powerless yeah. over the obsession, then there's nothing that you can do about it. Okay. Okay. But An surely I can. Thought. Surely I there's... can have some alarms that go off somewhere. You know, some warning signs. I understand. You want to control it. I want warning signs. Her. Well, what part of powerless <laughs> don't you get? An obsession I, means that the thought fills the screen and there's no other thought. We'll talk about it more, though, because it, okay. for me, it was a very powerful, life-changing experience that put me into a deep anxiety for 48 hours when I yeah. had experience with it. So the thing, yeah, because I think that the, what's so unique about it is the food, and, and you acknowledge this, we have to pick our up our food yeah. 
we have to eat food. And so yep. healthy, wonderful yep. food can become like crossbones for me, you know, just yep. as just as, as dangerous. So well, okay. It sounds like you're having a good experience with the fellowship that you're in and the sponsorship that you have. And uh, so now you're up for a little bit more insight, which will actually uh, increase your commitment to your uh, program as you understand the hopelessness of your condition even deeper. Yeah. And I think, you know, once again, I, you're reminding me to in just in this little conversation I'm having with you that it is me wanting, I want, I've always wanted to be taught how to control this. I just want teach to me how to do it. Manage yeah. my drinking. Yes, sir. Teach me how to do it. Yeah. 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 Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. When I'm going through, let's just say the addiction questions. So there's two definite addictions, which I've identified. So all the answers to that could, would be in the past, but there's, a couple of other things, let's call them process addictions, which are on the front burner, which I'm trying to identify and get in touch with. Yeah. To be for the most benefit, would you suggest that I just do the 20 questions with the alcohol, the 20 questions with the food, and then the 20 questions instead of trying to answer number one, A, B, C, D, E, Number two, A, B, C, D. Interesting. I would recommend a singleness of focus. That's what I think. But I don't have experience with it. I've not been asked the question before. So yeah. you're, you're my beta test site. I, okay. I want you to do it that I would suggest that you do it that way, one at a time going through the 20 questions. It sounds like you're willing to do that. As I say, the more specific you can be within uh, the range, I think the yeah. better off you're going to have as an experience. That's a I, great question. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank you. About the craving, as Bill uses it, I wanted to ask you about your experience that you shared about how it was periodic for you. Am I understanding you correctly that the craving, the phenomenon of craving was periodic when you would drink? Yes. It, Sometimes, okay, because that, so just, and just to be clear, sometimes for me too, I could have two beers and that was it. And yeah. I'd be fine and I'd be baffled why another time I would just be destroyed and just days would pass. Well, that's interesting. You were more conscious than me. I was never baffled. Well, actually, I never, never look back. You know, actually, when I'm in AA, when I was going, when I when I've gone through this, but when I look back on it now, I am baffled about how. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, but that's it, Herb. Thank you so much. Thank you. I have not had continuous abstinence. Mm -hmm. I hate when they say I'm struggling with the program because I break all the time, mm -hmm. and yet I maintain my weight. I keep it. So there's a certain amount of control going on, or something, and. Um, so I did the 20 questions and the only one I said no to was the first one. Now I looked at these before and I just wrote yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. But this time I actually answered every question. And the last one it said, you know, it, it was like basically is, is your life um, unhappy or remorseful? I just said read one through, I mean, two, two through 19. But my question is, 
this whole thing about craving, you say the craving starts after you take the bite? No, I don't say I, it. The, the doctor's opinion. The says. doctor's opinion. Okay. And I, I sense that I have the craving before to even take the bite. Well, of course. I mean, that's the dictionary definition of craving. That's the distinction I made. Yes, of course. But we're trying to understand what the doctor meant by his opinion. Okay. Because yeah. once I, but then, and then again, once I start, I can stop to a certain extent. I mean, I, I you say I, you can. I, I, I do, and I, and I have, and that's yeah. why I'm playing with it, and that's why I'm questioning, right. and yet I'm playing, and I think it's so dangerous for me to play like this. Yeah. And well, I, 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 yeah, I yeah. keep myself in a second-class position. I'm not allowed you, to vote. Oh, no voice, no vote. Can't speak at meetings for you know, I years. I understand. Do you have a sponsor? Yes, I do. And you talk to her about these issues? Yes, yeah. Um, that yes. was a bit timid. Do you talk to her about these issues? I talked to her not specifically about this. Oh, well, we have, you're hiding from your sponsor. I don't feel I am, but but basically, I will talk to her tomorrow morning. Thank you. If you yeah, <laughs> if, you're, if you're not being transparent, you're hiding. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good for you. Thank you. When I was doing that timeline, and I saw the progressiveness of trying to control that first bite, I haven't been able to control it since the age of five. That was my yeah. first experience being out of control. Yeah, I I was able to suddenly see that the bulimia, all it was, was another attempt to try to control. That it sounds crazy. Yeah. It was another attempt to try to control, and I saw the progressiveness yeah. and the desperation, yeah. the desperation of trying to control it. So it was amazing doing that timeline. I realized what. I always got to that alcoholic food. Once I got to the alcoholic food, it was over. But yeah. I never realized what got me to the alcoholic food. And what got me to the alcoholic food was starting with a non-alcoholic food. I needed to eat to get that calm feeling. And I always thought that, oh, but this is non-alcoholic food. So I was in yeah. OA. Really, and it's difficult to, to keep uh, them separated because they're so connected and it's artificial. But what you're talking about now is really about the obsession and the problem of the mind. I'd like you to just focus on what happens when you begin, you lose control, right? Right, totally. So the, when question, I isn't, the question isn't today. Uh, why did you begin? That's not the question today. The question today is what happens after you begin? So after I begin, right? It's like someone said, I finished the whole bag. I don't finish the whole bag. I keep going on to the next bag. That's it. I go, I'll go, I'll do anything. I'll spend right. money to go and get more because right. I cannot stop that feeling. See, I but, cannot but stop that. And everything after the first bite is just story because it's totally predictable, except for the periodic. It's not predictable for the periodic, and that makes it a little bit more challenging for us. But the outcome is still the same. Periodically, we lose control. Perhaps on a regular basis, you lose control. The issue is not periodic or not chronic. The issue is the loss of control. Right. Yeah, and and then and I just see the many different ways I kept trying to control. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's going to be another subject for another day with the obsession in a couple of weeks. But we'll be looking at that, and we'll spend much more time on it because it's much more critical. 
why do we begin in the first place when we really have a history of suffering? Why do we walk into the gates of hell? But I never saw that history of suffering. That's another issue with the obsession and the mind problem. What's wrong with you? It's, Bill, it's, I, think I could it's, have said that. I could have said exactly that. I never saw the connection. Right. Till I sat down and I did that timeline, I never saw there I never saw the connection of the unmanageability to there the There you go. Point. Thank you. Thank you for Thank witness you. to the power of being specific and doing these these tools that are, are being offered to uh, each one of us. It's really important to have that uh, confirmation or maybe a brand new experience. Thank you so much. Please uh, join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>